Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar. Episode 17, Atonement, the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to start off this episode by cutting straight to a guest contribution, because Ben gives us some really helpful background as to why this line was included in the creed in the first place. The line, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, is actually a very late addition to the Apostles' Creed. It's not, could almost say it's not technically part of the Apostles' Creed originally, but later on it, it came to be added. And here's why it was added. It's not primarily saying, I believe that Jesus died to take away my sins. I, I do personally believe that and I agree with that statement. The reason it's added, though, is, is a bit different. In the ancient church, there was a tendency after periods of persecution, especially, there was a tendency to rank believers, the true believers who'd stood fast during a persecution and all the rest who had run away or renounced their faith and then come creeping back into the doors of the church once things had got easier. The spiritual believers and the carnal believers, this, this type of thing. And sometimes if you, if you were downgraded, let's say if there'd been a persecution, you were going to have to pay a big tax if you didn't pray to the pagan gods and you had, you had chickened out, you'd prayed to the pagan gods, you'd renounced your faith. And then a few years later, when the laws change, you came creeping back into church. Sometimes what, what the church would do is put this heavy burden on you. Well, you're going to have to go through this whole process now to be reinitiated into the Christian community. We're going to, we're going to check that you're really on track. We might baptize you again. That was a common assumption that you'd forfeited your first baptism and would need to go through that again. And this came to be viewed as a heresy, as a false teaching about the church and a false teaching about grace and salvation. If you are a believer and you stumble, if you are a follower of Jesus and you deny him, the moment your heart turns back to him, you're already forgiven. Why? Because you were forgiven before anyway. You haven't cancelled your relationship to Jesus. It continues. The one baptism which you received is enough to carry you through life in spite of the fact that we all have ups and downs. We all have moments where either inwardly or outwardly we deny Christ. We forget him. We fail him. But the one baptism is enough for inclusion in Christ. And the one act on the cross that cancels out our sins the one act of forgiveness is all that we need through life. So that's actually what the creed is referring to. When it says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, it's actually a repudiation of spiritual elitism. It's saying you can't, it's a repudiation of the idea that you can backslide and then need to start all over again. We're all backsliders, let's face it. But we are all forgiven and embraced and sustained by the same grace that reached out to us in our baptism. This mention of sin in the creed takes us very naturally to the subject of atonement because our understanding of atonement is shaped by our understanding of sin. Now, the creed says nothing specifically about atonement. The whole of Jesus' work at the cross is just summarised in this declaration of the forgiveness of sins. So to make sense of this, we're going to have to go a little further than what the creed says here. We'll look at how we might understand sin first because the solution, that is atonement, depends on what we think the problem is. A little illustration might help. 
Our recent experience has been dominated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Here we have a less than ideal situation which needs to be remedied. What is the problem exactly? Well, obviously, the very real threat to our well-being is the virus. This presents a major issue. The risk of grave illness, of escalating case numbers, of a high death toll, these are all a part of the problem. But we could also look at some other effects. The impact on mental health, the loss of many people's livelihoods, the separation from loved ones, the absence of sport. Though they are consequences of the disease, they are nevertheless contributors to the overall problem of the pandemic. We could go a step further again and include in the problem of pandemic some of the factors that contributed to its development and exacerbated its spread. Overstretched healthcare systems, gross economic inequalities that force people to continue working in unsafe conditions, the spreading of misinformation, corporations operating irresponsibly with insufficient reserves, governments favouring economies over health, members of the general public unwilling to forfeit individual privileges and liberties for the well-being of the more vulnerable in our societies. I could go on, but I won't. When we start describing the problem, it turns out there are many layers. We might come at things from a different angle by asking what would it look like for the pandemic to be completely resolved? A vaccine is one aspect of that, inoculation against the dangers of the virus, as is improved treatment and care for those who contract the virus. There's been plenty of rhetoric around the necessary measures required for easing restrictions, effective testing and contact tracing mechanisms, and a social contract whereby people will voluntarily practice social distancing and self-isolate when unwell. But for many people, the pandemic won't really be over until they can hug their friends or travel to see family, worship in person as part of a large congregation, get married without restricting attendees, play the sport they love, see their favourite band in concert, recover from financial loss, etc. So part of the resolution is regaining some of these aspects of life that were previously taken for granted. But other aspects of the cure for this pandemic might involve changes to how we've always done things. Which parts of society from the before times do we actually want to retain? And what have we been able to reflect on and perhaps reconsider? We've seen a greater sense of solidarity. We've seen governments deliver welfare measures on an unprecedented scale. We'd hoped for processes and policies to be instigated that would lessen the impact of future viruses with pandemic potential. We might even want some ideological transformation around the value accorded to economic and health concerns. Do you see how many different ways we can look at it? What we see as the main problem affects our understanding of the cure. And we can approach the problem of sin in the same way. There are different ways of thinking about sin, and the Bible encourages us to understand sin as multifaceted. For example, we might think of sin as sickness or affliction. In Psalm 38, David laments that there is no health in my bones because of my sin. Or we could understand sin as slavery. The Apostle Paul often speaks of us being a slave to sin. Sin is sometimes presented as rebellion. Often in the Old Testament prophets, Israel is spoken of as having rebelled against God or the law. Or we can speak of sin in terms of ignorance or misunderstanding. 
Another way of understanding sin is the notion of estrangement. In Isaiah, for example, God says of the people that their hearts are far from me. And Jesus quotes this in Matthew, speaking about the Pharisees. And in the same way that we could identify underlying social and political factors that have contributed to the pandemic experience, there is a more corporate dimension to sin as well. Sin can be structural, embedded in our societies in ways that can become almost invisible to us. Roman Catholic theologian Karl Rahner illustrates this brilliantly by asking us to consider the simple act of buying a banana. It's just a banana, right? A healthy food choice even. But in purchasing the banana, we are participating in an economic exchange at the end of a whole chain of relationships that includes the practices of multinational banana selling companies, agricultural practices that threaten biodiversity in a number of ways, and quite often the exploitation of workers in growing, picking, and distributing the fruit. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't eat bananas, but it highlights how pervasive sin is in the world and how perpetuating it is often unavoidable if it's only up to us. So now let's look at the solution for sin, revisiting each of these different ways of describing sin. If sin is sickness, then the atonement brings healing. If sin is slavery, then the atonement frees us from the bonds of sin. When we see sin primarily as rebellion, the atonement must achieve some kind of submission or coming back to God. Where sin is more about ignorance, atonement demonstrates God's love for us and the proper response of obedience. If sin is estrangement, then the atonement reconciles us to God. And if we look at the structural dimensions of sin, the atonement must involve some kind of radical reconfiguring of our present social reality. What we emphasise as the problem will determine what the solution is. Reformed theologian John Calvin made this exact point, saying, If the death of Christ be our redemption, then we were captives. If it be satisfaction, we were debtors. If it be atonement, we were guilty. If it be cleansing, we were unclean. Like a vaccine for coronavirus, Jesus inoculates us against sin, not by preventing us from sinning completely, but by providing a way out from the otherwise inescapable consequences of our destructive and self-interested actions. He gives us a vision of a new and radical way of living that addresses the underlying structures of sin as well as our individual experience. And when it comes to atonement, we tend to see different emphases throughout history, which makes sense given that theology is often made sense of in relation to the broader social, political and philosophical context of the time. The early church faced persecution and many martyrs were executed for their faith. It's not surprising then that the dominant understanding of the cross was victory over sin and death. We call this the ransom theory or Christus Victor model. Humanity is released from slavery to sin by Christ's victory over the powers of evil on the cross. In the shame and honour culture that St Anselm lived in in the 11th century, it's perhaps not surprising that he primarily understood sin to be an offence against God's honour. And the way to redress this is to restore honour to God. We couldn't do this ourselves, but the death of Christ as an act of an obedience does that for us. A little later on, we find what we call the moral influence model. In this understanding, the main way that Jesus solves the problem of sin is by providing us with an example, the example, of right living. 
we're called to imitate Christ. His life and death model the character we should strive for for ourselves, and his resurrection vindicates this way of living. In the Middle Ages and during the time of the Reformation, more legal understandings of atonement started to emerge, again drawing on ideas from everyday life. In these models of substitution, Jesus pays a penalty on our behalf to restore justice or redeems us by paying our debts. If we go to the scriptures, we see a whole range of models and metaphors for the atonement. Take Colossians chapter 2 verses 14 to 15, which say that when we were dead in our trespasses, sin, God made you alive together with Jesus when he forgave us all our trespasses erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Just in this one passage, we have models of substitution, erasing our record, and victory. In other passages, for example, 2 Peter 1, verse 4, We have the idea of transformation as we escape from our corrupted nature and participate in the divine nature. And we could probably draw on ideas from our contemporary experience as well to explain what atonement means in terms that resonate today. We cannot forget the reality of a mysterious God who works out our salvation in many ways. The various models attested in scripture could be interpreted as an attempt made by the biblical authors to make sense of the multidimensional nature of the atonement within their own context, and that same challenge is before us today. If you're wondering how this connects to everyday concerns, consider the fact that you've probably sung worship songs in church that subscribe to a particular understanding of atonement. For example, My chains are gone, I've been set free. That comes from the song This is Amazing Love. Or the song In Christ Alone, which says, Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Once you've thought about different models of the atonement, I promise you that examples of each will jump out at you in the songs that you sing and the prayers that you pray. But let's return to the creed. The forgiveness of sins. Today, we all too quickly think of sin in individual terms. But the original authors of the creed would have understood this clause as addressing sin at more than just the level of the individual. The forgiveness of sins is a cosmic event. All debts are forgiven. All are freed from slavery. This echoes back to the Jubilee principle in the Old Testament. Every 50 years there would come a time when all slaves would be freed and all debts would be cancelled. And this practice was there to prevent the perpetuation of injustice and inequality. Let's remember that both sin and atonement are multifaceted, and the redemption which God is working out in the world is nothing short of total transformation. As we finish, take some time to consider anew. What does the cross mean for you? This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.